You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Well, let's grab our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark as we return to our study of this amazing book. And I want to do an exercise as you're turning there, asking you to close your eyes. Would you do that for just a moment? Just trust me. I'm not going to do anything crazy. Close your eyes. And I want you to think of what pops in your mind when I say this one word or this one name. Are you ready? Here's the name, Jesus. Now, for some of you, you might, in your mind, imagine a character from a TV series or a movie, or others of you might imagine the Jesus from paintings or the felt storyboards from Sunday school growing up. Others of you might be drawn to specific events in Jesus' life and ministry, the uh, healing of lame people, the feeding of the 5,000, or maybe some of you are drawn to what he has done for you. You have reflected on the fact that you were depraved sinners, unable to even take a step in the direction of Christ. You reflected on the fact that he graciously and sovereignly uh, interceded with your will and enabled you to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as you reflect on those years since that conversion, you have seen changes that can only be explained as the glorious transformation that occurs in the gospel. Whatever vision or image that you had as I mentioned that name, I have to tell you, it is at some level deficient. At some level, it is deficient because of traditions that you have grown up in or messages that you have heard preached that trend towards social realities rather than a biblical Jesus. It also is deficient because for a human being to completely wrap our brains around the Jesus of Scripture, who is, in fact, infinite God, it is impossible for us to fully comprehend. Would you open your eyes? Which brings us to what Mark has been doing. He has been providing snapshots as we've traveled through the life of Jesus that have given us these lookouts, these vistas of who the biblical Jesus is. And we have talked about how Jesus is the true Israel, how Jesus is the authentic Jesus of Scripture, how we see religion that is all around us in humanity, including atheism. And we see how Jesus provides lenses for us to see true religion. We understand that the Jesus of Scripture is not just interested in our awareness of him, He demands and calls us to follow him. We've also seen that Jesus has a true family of those who have followed after him. It is a true family and that the family of Jesus is not related through ethnicity or through denomination, but through those who live in obedience, worshipful obedience under their King Jesus. We've also seen the snapshot of how the fulfillment and the completion of redemptive history is contained in the person and work of Jesus. These and other snapshots Mark has provided to bring together to see a portrait of the true biblical Jesus so that we can see him, we can savor him, and we can ensure that we are surrendered to him. Well, hopefully you've turned to Mark chapter 6, either by your notes or maybe I already said it. But if you don't have a Bible, 
You can grab the Bibles in front of you and turn to Mark chapter 6 on page 842. And if you've arrived there, you see the section that we are going to study this morning, and you see the header that Jesus walks on what in this passage? He walks on water. If you've grown up in the church, you're familiar with this story. It's the uh, theme song of the Chosen TV show. It is the marketing phrase for the Jesus College in England that perennially wins the Yachting Club's championships. But what is this story about? The story occurs in three of the four Gospels. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, most of these details agree with Mark, but there's some additional ones. Matthew highlights the fact that Peter stepped out of the boat, walked on water for a while, but then he sunk. Interesting how Peter most likely dictating the story to Mark doesn't include that. Matthew also includes at the end of this story that the disciples worship Jesus, even saying that Jesus was the Son of God, which as we studied throughout Mark, that is an important messianic title. The Gospel of John also includes this account in John chapter 6, and it includes a couple of additional details as well. The fact that even though the boat was in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, John says it immediately arrived at shore after the miracle occurs. So why does Mark include the details that he does and not the details that Matthew and John include? Well, that's because Mark, just like Matthew and John, have an objective with the details that they provide. They have a portrait of Jesus that they are intending to paint through the stories and the details that they provide. And so what Mark is doing in this section is highlighting the fact that Jesus is the true shepherd of his sheep. Jesus is the true shepherd of his sheep, and that brings into our context the story of the feeding of the 5,000 that we studied a few weeks ago. Jesus is the true shepherd who provides for, protects, and cares for his flock. And the closest thing I think we have to that context is parenting. Parenting, in a similar fashion, provides for, protects, and cares for children. And so if you're a parent, you can relate to this from a practical standpoint. If you're not a parent, you have parents, and you either have positive or negative or a combination of those contexts that you can draw from. But for me personally, there was something that happened kind of like what happened to Captain America, If you've seen the Captain America movie, the first Avenger, there's this scrawny Captain America that enters into this capsule, and then all of a sudden through lightning and Tony Stark's dad, he is infused with these awesome new abilities. And he comes out, and the ladies are like, whoa. And I felt like not the physical Captain America, but that experience that as I was getting ready to have the birth of our daughter Meg and welcome her in, all of a sudden there's these lightning bolts of new abilities of a desire to provide for her, to protect her, to care for her more than my own preservation. And there was one specific desire that I remember experiencing, and that was I wanted to give to my Meg a childhood that was better than my own. 
And I wondered, is that natural? And so I started asking some other veteran dads, and those veteran dads said, yes, we, we have that same instinct. But several of them said very quickly, that isn't always what's best for them. It isn't always best that they're protected from skin knees. It isn't always best that they have bigger homes than you had when you were growing up. It isn't always best that they have more toys, that they upgrade from their friends and what they have. It isn't always best that they have every opportunity that the culture provides. It isn't always best that they're given a car, that they have their college paid for. It isn't always best. And what I've learned through the years as I've reflected on my childhood is that most of the times when I grew the most in my character and in my development, it was not the times when I was given everything that I wanted. It was not in the times when I was able to upgrade from my friends in the neighborhood. It was not in the times when I was kept from skin knees, but instead the times when I had skin knees. It was not in the times when I had everything. It was in the times when I had to go without. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not okay to give our children nice things, but if that is what drives us, if that is our objective, if we think that in that fulfillment we will give our children what they need, then we're missing the point of being a shepherd. And what we see in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus often, as a shepherd, acts in an unconventional way toward his sheep. And I want you to see this morning that it is often the times when the wind is blowing in our face and we are making little to no progress that we have the opportunity to see him most clearly. Let me read our passage and then we will study together. Beginning in verse 45, it says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Underline that, would you please? And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in the villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. The shepherd is on display in this passage in rather unexpected and undesirable ways, but it is certainly what is best for the disciples. Number one, the shepherd models first things. The shepherd models first things. We've got to go back to the Gospel of John chapter 6 and look at verse 15 to be able to understand the context that Mark does not provide. 
at the end of the miracle of the 5,000, the people were so amazed that five loaves and two fish could be multiplied to the extent where 5,000 family units were fed to their full and some were left over that they decide that enough is enough. Now it is time to make Jesus king. Now imagine the response of the disciples. Imagine the opportunity that afforded to Jesus. It's one thing when people know your name. It's another thing when people come from all over a region to be able to come to your conference. It's another thing when those crowds desire to make you their ruler. And from a horizontal standpoint, isn't that a great opportunity for Jesus and the disciples? It's the potential of a captive audience. It's the potential that people will listen. It's the potential that these crowds can actually now be strategically used to advance the gospel. And so we expect that Jesus will take advantage of this opportunity. But look at what it says in verse 45. It says, he made his disciples get into the boat. The verb in the original language is actually one of emphasis. It's one of intentionality. In fact, Kent Hughes, one of the commentators on the Gospel of Mark, said it's like the dad who sees his children wanting to stay at the water park but says, no, 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 that's not what's best for you. Get in the car. The imagery is of Jesus seeing his disciples kind of like, oh, like puppy dogs. It's our time. And he's like, no, 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 pushing them to get in the boat and pushing the boat off of the shore. That seems unconventional, doesn't it? And in fact, Jesus gives them instruction, doesn't he? He says, go to Bethsaida. For us, if we have a mental map, imagine, if you will, that the Sea of Galilee is shaped like a harp, like, you know, the the harp that you play for music. And imagine that the place where Jesus fed the 5,000 is on the northwest shore of the harp. Bethsaida, then, is on the northeastern shore of the harp. And so in order to get there by boat, you're going to have to go out over some very deep waters. Let's put a pin in that, and we'll come back to it in a moment. So the disciples are sent off. The crowd and the multitude is still standing there. They're still wanting to make Jesus king, but what does he do? Look at verse 45. He dismisses the crowd. That's unconventional, isn't it? A man whom the crowd wants to make king is given an opportunity to advance his message and mission, and he sends them away. And what is Jesus going to do? Well, you might expect him to go to another populated area to kind of build on this, but with a more desirable group of people. And it says that he goes and he prays. Beloved, this is unconventional for most human beings, but especially for us as Americans, isn't it? I mean, Americans are doers. When is the last film that you have seen that has done well in the box office of something in American history where a problem occurred and the person grabbed two people or spent time themselves for two and a half hours in that movie simply praying or seeking counsel? It's not the movies that are made. The movies that are made are of Americans who saw problems and they took action. 
You don't see movies made of Americans who spent their entire life complaining about the government. You see movies made about people who did something about it. And certainly there's a time for action. In fact, if anybody had an opportunity for action, wouldn't it be the one who simply spoke the universe into existence? And beloved, I'm not saying there's never a time for action. In fact, a a quote will be put up on the screen. There is a time for action, but listen to what Jesus models. There's a time for action, but the priority for a follower of Christ is always worship and communion with him. But beloved, that's not our default, is it? Our default is there's a problem, we take action. Our default is there's there's a problem, we complain. Our default is not to put first things first. And so what are the first things that Jesus puts first? Well, in this particular case, it says that he prayed. You know, prayer in my life is probably like prayer in your life, and that is it is one of the spiritual disciplines that we need to work hardest at. Oftentimes, prayer is relegated to a brief moment before we dive into a meal, right? Often, prayer is relegated to the times in our lives when we are desperate or when a message like this is preached and we get convicted. But prayer often in most of our lives is not something that we would say is a trophy of God's grace in each one of our lives. And so the the natural expectation that you might have right now as Americans is that I'm going to give you three steps to a better prayer life. But that's action. And I think what Mark provides for us here is an opportunity to first worship. He does so by two words here in the text. Got it. Uh, there's so many times I do things as a preacher and I'll, I look back on them afterwards and I'll think, what did you do? <laughs> My seminary professors would never have told me to kill a fly. Uh, but it is what it is. I did it. We move on. <laughs> the two words I want to draw your attention to are found in verse 46. Look what it says. He went up on the mountain. Would you underline that? And those of you who are Colorado people, you're like, yes. But I think it's important for us to see that every word of Scripture is important. This is not just Jesus going to mountains because he's a mountain person. It says he went to the mountain. The word the provides an opportunity to recognize specificity. This is the mountain. Now, again, it is likely Peter who is dictating to Mark the details of this story. And it's likely that Peter is remembering that there was a certain mountain on the northwest shore. I like to think of it as the my mountain when I went to Israel. And I hope we have an opportunity to send a team there someday. It transforms the way that you read Scripture. But I remember going to Migdal. It's likely in this area where Jesus was. And there was this mountain that just rises like nothing else right behind Migdal. And it rises to this point and there's this stony edge and there's trees that lead up to it. And I wonder if it's that mountain. But it was likely that Mark provides this detail because there was a certain place that Jesus and his disciples enjoyed going to as a retreat from the busyness of life. 
But I also think that Mark is providing this article, this word that we often would read over because of a biblical theology point that he is making here. See, all throughout Scripture, the, the idea of a mountain is an important. In fact, let me give you some passages that you can study later. First of all, Ezekiel 28, 14. Ezekiel 28, 14 tells us that the Garden of Eden was actually on a mountain. As we progress through the book of Genesis, we see that mountains play a significant role. Consider Genesis 22, when the Lord says to Abram, take your son, your only son, the son that you love, and go to the mountains of Moriah, and there I want you to sacrifice your son. Progress forward to the Jews coming out of Egypt and going into the promised land. They stopped off at a mountain known as Sinai where God gave them the commandments and instruction by which they were to live in the promised land. Consider when they arrived in the promised land, the capital city that David set up was on a mountain that was located in the mountains of Moriah. In fact, Scholars believe that Jerusalem and the Temple Mount is built on the actual mountain where Isaac was supposed to be sacrificed. Then, fast forward, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22, where it describes the new Jerusalem that Revelation 21 tells us will be our eternal home. And it says that that is the holy mountain, the, the mountain of God. And so you see this theme of mountain being woven all throughout Scripture, which is a concept of biblical theology. And I think what Peter is doing is reflecting on this story, having insight that he did not have then, but had now at the time of writing, he wants to give this phrase for those who understand and have studied Scripture. And that is this very one who is about to be made king by the masses goes to the mountain to pray because he is the greater Israel. He is the greater Abraham. He is the greater Messiah where all of those great saints of the past failed. He succeeds. And beloved, I think what this is intended to do in our hearts is get us to a place where prayer is no longer duty. It is a privilege. Where prayer is no longer religion. It is a responsibility and a delight that we can go and actually communicate with this God, the God who spoke the world into existence, the God who succeeds where all others fail, the God who extends to us exactly what we need for life and godliness is in, and is weaving together every detail of our lives and the world around us according to his perfect plan and for his glory Wow. And so before we even get to the action of praying, we're reminded of the who to whom we pray. And it's intended to elicit within us a joy and a delight in doing this. Let me remind you of three first things first that Jesus, Jesus models in the Gospels that he commends to us. First of all, prayer. Prayer. It's right here in the text, but it's all throughout the New Testament. 
In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, when you pray, he's expecting that prayer is a natural part of a Christian's life, just like breathing and eating. But beloved, if you're like me, again, prayer is not something we do well. So let me remind you what Jesus did, and that is that prayer is an opportunity to align our wills with God's. I mean, that's often where my wilderness times, my dry seasons of prayer are refreshed. Is that when I go to prayer, that's why I reflect on his character. That's why I confess my sins. That's why when I'm asking requests, I'm doing so through the lens and the grid of God's will. That will put us in the right starting point for prayer. Number two, we study the word. I mean, the word of God just flowed out of Jesus. Of course, he is the word. And he authored the word, but he models to us the first thing of studying the word. And if you struggle with studying the word, let me just remind you that every passage you read is an opportunity to discover attributes of God. Every passage that you read is an opportunity to see how does that passage move us toward the epicenter of redemptive history, none other than Jesus Christ. And if you take those tools and those become the lenses, then any passage, whether it's Leviticus, Psalms, or the Gospels, will get you to a place where you start to delight in that exercise. Number three, learn from encouraging others to be more like Christ. Learn from encouraging others to be more like Christ. You see, prayer can often be done on our own. Studying the word can be done on our own. But as you see, even by the example of Jesus, putting people around him to point them to becoming more like himself, as you see in the New Testament, the importance of a local church and the one and others that are contained in it, you see that this is part of putting first things first. And listen, beloved, if you will follow these first things first, I promise you that when the wind blows in your face and when the rowing is hard and when the progress is small, you will be able to continue rowing. Number two, the shepherd makes use of hard. He makes use of hard. The geography context here is that Jesus told them to head east. Now, that's interesting Because as we studied in Mark chapter 4, there are two types of windstorms on the Sea of Galilee. The windstorms that come in from the west are storms that you can anticipate, kind of like what happens here. That as you see the clouds building, as you know the time of the year, we know that that area is more susceptible to these kinds of storms and you can prepare for them. But the storms that come out of the east happen instantaneously. There's no warning signs for them. They are strong. They come in off of the Golan Heights. So if a boat is heading east and there is wind heading in their face, what direction is it coming from? I'll save you some time and some neurons and say it's coming from the east. So this is one of those strong winds that we saw in Mark chapter 4 coming down from the Golan Heights, and it is making it nearly impossible for the disciples to make progress. Look at verse 48. They were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Now let's just remember the context. They were actually obeying Jesus. He told them to row to the east. He knew that they would be susceptible to these winds that came from the east. They were obeying him, and because of their obedience, they were in a situation 
that was difficult. In fact, literally, the Greek says that they were being harassed. It's a word that means to punish by physical torture or torment. The picture is painted for us by this explanation that the disciples, heading into the three to six o'clock in the morning time frame, which is the fourth watch, we see that in the text, are rowing their guts out. Their muscles are sore. The water is pelting them in the face. The, the waves are crashing. I, I talked to a gentleman who was with the Coast Guard for a couple decades, and he says, listen, I've been in storms like this. He said, we can't even fathom how powerful those waves are, how difficult it is to make headway. And that's the context that the disciples were experiencing. He instructed them to go to a place where he knew they were susceptible to hard. It's interesting. They were terrified, not by the storm, but by what they thought was a ghost. Phantasma is the word in the Greek from which we get the word phantom. And it says that Jesus made his way toward them, and he was walking on the sea. I love this. I love that it says that he walked on the sea rather than walking on water because as kids growing up, we tried to walk on water, didn't we? Didn't some of you? Whether you were at the beach and the waves were coming in and, you know, it's like a, you know, two or three inches and you're running really fast. Look, I'm walking on water. Or as boys, what we would do is we would set up these floaties on the pool and we would put them in order so that we could try to run really fast and shout to all of our friends, we're walking on water, which, by the way, don't do that. That's very dangerous. And people have tried to explain that this is not Jesus miraculously walking on water, but the text tells us otherwise. He was walking on the water in the middle of the sea where this boat was. He put them through hard for a reason. You know, I'll go back to the theme of being a dad. You know, growing up, the kids would want to help me. And I used to love that because that usually demonstrated that it was one of those moments where they were thinking of others more highly than themselves. In fact, those special times were when we were loading up the car for vacation and my girls would want to help me carry a suitcase. And I would remember, I would say, okay, yeah, go ahead. You can carry the, the suitcase. And they would and they'd get it, you know, off the ground by that much. And I would quickly jump in, and I would carry the suitcase for them, and I would celebrate and ask them to show me their muscles and, you know, show me their elbows. And those were special moments. But why did I jump in? Because I knew it was not good for them to continue carrying that suitcase. They might pull a muscle. They might drop the suitcase down the stairs. They might, and the suitcase, tumble down the stairs. And so because I knew what was best for them, when they experienced hard, I would jump in. But beloved, we have a shepherd who is more informed about us and what is best for us than even a parent for their child. Let me ask the team to put a quote up on the screen. If we can affirm that we are living in obedience... And things become hard, even really hard, we should keep rowing and keep obeying. 
That's what I've learned from this passage. That's what I've learned from studying the Bible. That's what I've learned from my own life. But it's important, that first part, because a lot of times we'll experience storms in life and wind blowing in our face and a lack of progress and just assume that it's Satan. Just assume that it's not our sin. But God often causes wind to blow in our lives and our progress to be slow because of sin in our lives. In fact, you can write down Hebrews chapter 12 and you can look at it later. But it says that the the father disciplines those children whom he delights in. So does God to his children. And the point is, is that there are often times in our lives where there is slow going, when there is wind in our face because of our own sin. So the first thing that we need to do is evaluate our lives, evaluate our thinking, our our speaking, and our living to see, are we living in sin in any way? Because if the answer to that question is yes, then most likely the winds in our face are because of our sin and God's getting our attention. But if we go through that exercise, and as best as we can tell, we are living lives of obedience to our God, then, beloved, keep rowing. Keep obeying. Because God makes use of the hard. As I mentioned, scholars have attempted to explain naturally that Jesus was not doing what the Bible says he was doing. But let me give you three reasons why Jesus was doing what the Bible was saying. First of all, literally, in the original, in verse 47, it says the boat was in the middle of the sea. Let me ask you this. Even if you haven't been to the ocean, I think you'll be able to figure this out. Where is the water deeper, at the shore or in the middle? (laughs) It's the middle. And the middle is scary because that's where the bigger fish are. The middle is scary because you have less control and less ability to be able to anchor into the ground and the earth. The boat was in the middle of the sea, but number two, the word says he was walking on the sea. This is actually a word that is translated sea. Amazing, huh? And then number three, The verb of him walking is a present tense verb, meaning this is continuous action. This is not an aorist tense where it would be likely focusing more on the action. It's focusing more on the continuation with the present tense. So Jesus is not just dipping his toe and then saying, look, I walked on water. Jesus is making progress over a great distance, over different depths of water in the middle of a windstorm, and it terrifies the disciples. Verse 50 says they were terrified. Which, by the way, beloved, listen, being terrified in and of itself is not sin. What's important to evaluate is what is terrifying you and what do you do with it. In fact, that might be something to write down. Because there's a lot of misunderstanding about the concept of fear within Christianity. There's a lot of misunderstanding about even the concept of being afraid of something, even just in life. And I'll draw to your attention an opportunity for future study. Write down John chapter 11, verse 33. It says, when Jesus observed the people weeping outside of Lazarus' tomb, it said he experienced the same thing that the disciples did. And that's a different study that you can do on your own. Verse 49 says that they were terrified, not by the windstorm, but by the fact that between 3 and 6 in the morning, there was a human being outside of their boat on the water in the middle of the sea in a windstorm. 
It says that they cried out. It's the word that is translated cried out in 123 of Mark of the demon who shrieks. This is blood curling, crying out. And they think naturally that this is something supernatural. Verse 49 says a ghost, a phantasma. Why did Jesus put them in this situation? Verse 48, the end of the verse says that he meant to pass by them. I have to tell you, I, I read this and reread it and reread it again and, and didn't understand it. So I looked at some other translations. The New American Standard says that he intended to pass by them. The New King James says he would have passed by them. The New International Version says he's about to pass by them. So what that conveys to my mind is that Jesus didn't plan to stop. But I think when you dig into the original language and when you look at the rest of Scripture, you can see that more literally this should be translated, he desired to walk alongside them. Now why is that important? You can write down Job chapter 9 and verse 8 and 10 and 11, and I'll read these to you. A passage that the disciples and any Jew who grew up in that context would have been familiar with. Job 9, beginning in verse 8, describing God says, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. If you trample something, you walk on it, you stomp on it. Verse 10. Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? Behold, verse 11, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Now that combined with Exodus 33 and verse 15, the context there, verse 18, I apologize, is that Moses on Mount Sinai is getting the instruction from God and says, hey, I need some confirmation. God, I want you to show me your glory. And do you remember what God did? He hid Moses in a cleft of the rock and he passed by so that Moses could catch a glimpse of him. And I think when you combine these two passages, as well as other accounts, when God wanted people clearly to see his attributes and character, he came alongside of them. And I think that's what you see in the intentionality of Jesus in passing by the terrified disciples on the boat. One more quote before we move on to number three. And that is this, the most clear view of God's character is often most visible in the fog of the hard. The most clear view of God's character is often most visible in the fog of the hard. And beloved, I think you can relate to me on this, can't you? Haven't some of your greatest discoveries of God's character been in your most desperate moments? And listen, I'm not wishing upon you that you find out that you have cancer. I'm not wishing upon you, that your child has an accident. I'm not wishing any of that on you. All I'm saying is if you're experiencing pain and headwinds and lack of progress despite a life of obedience, remember that that's an opportunity for you to see most vividly the character of God. Number three, the shepherd moves toward growth, which before we get into that, I just want to highlight something I, I skipped over. I love verse eight. Jesus, from his vantage point on the mountain praying, he saw them, didn't he? 
And despite the wind, despite the distance, despite the storms in our lives, Jesus sees us most intimately. But number three, the shepherd moves toward growth. So the disciples are teetering on the fulcrum of believing or not believing, but it appears in this moment that they are demonstrating growth. Remember back in chapter 4, there was a massive storm on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus highlighted the fact that their response demonstrated cowardice. Remember that? In fact, he said, why are you afraid? And the word afraid is translated cowardly. It's the the person who hears a bump in the night and immediately runs away. It's the person who anticipates struggle and wants to run to comfort. And Jesus told his disciples, that's what you're demonstrating. You need to grow. But here you don't see that word used. You see the disciples appear to respond by evidence of growth. They received him into the boat. In fact, it says in verse 51 that they were utterly astounded. The account in Matthew chapter 14 says that they worshiped and they even declared that he is the son of God. It sure appears that there is growth. The problem is verse 52. It says they did not understand about the loaves for their hearts were hardened. So what Peter is doing through Mark is reminding the reader that even though there appears to be growth, even though there appears to be progress, there wasn't growth in the way Jesus wanted there to be growth. You know, with our kids, there's those rare moments. In fact, no, I say that, but the the opposite is true. Our kids have blessed us as parents. They are certainly not perfect. But we have heard comments like this, that if you're a parent, you want to hear, and that is the person who, when you visit their house, tells you before you leave, your parent, your kids are so well-behaved. Your kids are so respectful. I mean, as a parent, doesn't that just make you, oh, we're doing something right. (laughs) But oftentimes, the the reason why somebody makes that comment is because they get a, a, a small snapshot of your kids, right? And what you know as a parent is that at home, they're not necessarily treating their siblings that same way. At home, they aren't always using those manners. But on the surface, because of the checkboxes, everything seems to be in order. And I think that if all we're doing is looking at the disciples through those lenses, we would celebrate the growth that the checkboxes demonstrate. But Jesus is looking for a different type of growth. Jesus is looking for a growth in understanding. And what Peter reveals through what he gave to Mark is that the disciples were still struggling in this point. It says in verse 52, their hearts were hardened. They had seen the miracle of Jesus. Jesus had used Old Testament vocabulary to reveal that not only is he the prophesied Messiah, but he is actually the king who will be in the New Jerusalem. Those droplets were given to the disciples, but they still didn't understand. And that's what it means when it says their hearts were hardened. It doesn't mean that they are rejecting Christ. It doesn't mean that they are living in sin. It means that they're not getting it. And Jesus wants his disciples to get it. Let me give you some verses that I would encourage you to write down. They'll put them up on the screen. Matthew chapter 13, verse 51. Matthew 16, verse 12. 17, verse 13, 
Luke chapter 2, verse 50. Luke chapter 18, verse 34. John chapter 8, verse 27. Chapter 10, verse 6, 12, 16. These are just a sample of passages where Jesus, as the rabbi, was asking his disciples or instructing them, you need to understand. You need to be able to connect the dots. It's not just enough to gather facts. You need to understand what the facts are being put together to communicate. This is theology. Remember Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27, as the two disciples were on the Emmaus Road reflecting on what had taken place just hours before Jesus shows up. And he's listening to them process. He's listening to them explain the purpose behind the events. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, oh foolish ones, slow to believe or understand what the prophets wrote. And then he gives them instruction intended to move them toward understanding. Understanding, beloved, is important to Jesus, and the disciples just didn't get it. How can I explain that from the text? Look at verse 50. They all saw him and were terrified, but immediately. Now, what we would expect as parents living out the shepherding instincts is that we would think that the biggest need that the disciples had was for the wind to stop, right? Or for Jesus to actually get in and use his Captain Jesus muscles to help row. John 6 tells us that accomplishes much. But Jesus doesn't stop the wind at this point. He doesn't jump in and start rowing. He does something. Look at what the text says. He spoke to them. He identifies that it is him. And what he's expecting of his disciples, that the simple fact that he is present will give them courage. That's what verse 50 says. Take heart. Have courage. Let that control your fear. And beloved, what I just shared with you is a, a nugget of gold for me and for you to help us understand fear. Fear will happen in our life because it is a natural mechanism that God has wired within every human being, but it is never intended to control us. We are intended to control fear. And what Jesus is showing the disciples by simply speaking to them is that by his very presence, that confidence in him should allow them to control their fear. And beloved, to the degree that we understand the character of Jesus, to the degree that we understand how Jesus connects the dots of Scripture, to the degree that we understand who we have in Jesus, that no matter how strong the winds are, no matter how much of a lack of progress there is, when you simply are reminded that he is there, you will have courage and control your fear. That's what Jesus intends to elicit within the lives of of the disciples, but beloved, look at the sad reality that Peter is reflecting on in verse 50. He spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat, verse 51, with them, and the wind ceased. Those mighty waves turn into a glass crystal sea. And it's only after that that they were utterly astounded. It's only after that that they were amazed. 
Beloved, the shepherd intends every message that you hear, every study opportunity that you take, every experience of your life is intended to grow your understanding of his character and how all of those facts connect. So I want to remind you of three reasons why this type of understanding is so important. Number one, understanding overflows into patterns of worship motivated obedience. Beloved, you want to grow in the ability to have worship-motivated thinking, speaking, and living? Grow in your understanding of who God is. When Jesus is simply a neatly wrapped box of understanding, when Jesus is simply relegated to a God of compassion and mercy and healing, when he is a, a concept that you think you have figured out, beloved, No wonder you aren't motivated by worship in your obedience. But when you begin to be introduced and recalibrated to a God who makes you feel uncomfortable, when you are taught a theology that makes you squirm but is clearly in God's word, then, beloved, it expands your view, your awe, your affections for God. And when that happens, worship is a natural response. And when you are worshiping, obedience is naturally outflowing from that. So, beloved, grow in your understanding of the God of Scripture and worship-motivated obedience will follow. But number two, this type of understanding authenticates true disciples. True disciples are authenticated by an accurate understanding of the God of Scripture. There are some who profess to be Christians. There are some who actually serve as pastors in churches and for a time appear to be authentic disciples. But as their ministry progresses, as their life goes on, their teaching and their understanding is reflected to be heresy. And what that does is expose that no matter how good they've looked in the past, no matter how passionate they were in a claim that they aren't authentic disciples of Christ or that they need to repent. So, beloved, accurate understanding and growth in understanding authenticates disciples. But then number three, it affirms growth. You want to know whether or not you are growing as a disciple of Christ? Look for a growth in your understanding of God. See, the true shepherd often through the hard moments of our lives and fueled by first things first shepherds us toward growth of understanding. Number four, the shepherd makes available true progress. There's a reason why I've included these verses beginning in verse 53 in the Jesus walking on the sea account because I think it brings it all to a conclusion. Verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. Now, I want to just say, for those of you who care about this stuff, if you're following on the map, they're going from the northwest toward the northeast, but they end up in the west. So it's like, wait a minute, did Jesus want them to get to the west? Did the storm blow them off course? And man, trust me, there's a lot of time I spent this week reading commentaries trying to figure this out. But I think that it's this. We can clearly see that Jesus intended for them to be in the middle of the sea when the storm came. And I think he intended for them to end up in the west side of the Sea of Galilee, which was the Jewish region 
where Jesus would have his next, next opportunity to teach about the difference between the traditions of men and the traditions of God. Oh, I can't wait. So I think the ultimate objective was, the destination was the West Coast, which they could have walked, but then they would have avoided the hard. So they arrive at the original destination, and when they get out of the boat, it says the people immediately recognize him. They're anticipating him. They're looking for him. Why? Because they want progress in their life. That's it. Listen, when Jesus is on display, there is always going to be a reaction from human beings. There always will be. That is just the natural response. When Jesus is on display, two reactions are going to take place. Either people are going to run away from him or they're going to run toward him. Now, the running toward him always is for the purpose of progress in life. Some people are wanting progress in life from a horizontal standpoint only. Others understand that the ultimate progress is vertical. Let's look at what this crowd was looking for. It says that they ran about the whole region. And they began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in the villages, cities, and countryside, what? They laid the sick in the marketplace. Why is that important? Because no matter what the size of the group of people, every one of them had a marketplace. Because the marketplace was the center of social and economic activity. And so they lay the sick at Jesus' feet. They implore him. That verb was found several times in Mark chapter 5. What do they beg him to do? That they might touch even the fringe of his garment. Why? Because they knew if they did that, what would happen is the end of verse 56. As many as touched it were made well. The Greek word is the word sozo. Why is that important? Because sozo means to make better, to heal, or listen to this, to save. And so just think about what is going on in this situation. Everyone who touched Jesus has sozo occur in their life. There is progress in their life, right? I mean, if you were sick, if you were lame, if you were demon-possessed, and now because of touching Jesus, you are now healed, you can now walk, you now do not have unclean spirits in you, could we all agree that that is progress? But beloved, here's the problem that is exposed by the book of Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite series that I've had as a preacher. And I hope it was a blessing to you if you were here, if you want to study it, In greater depth, grab the book, Living Life Backward by David Gibson. But what the the book of Ecclesiastes is intended to do is provide for us from the wisdom of Solomon the fact that there are many ways to measure progress in life, aren't there? Physical health, relationships, career paths, finances. And Solomon says, look, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with any of these things. In fact, God has given them to you to enjoy. But when those become the destination that you're pursuing, when those become your your expectation of satisfaction, when those are driving you with hope in your life, you will be left empty. And those business people who say, oh, if our company can just do this. Those people in their relationship status, if I could just have that. 
those driven people that could say, if I could just have this much savings or this much in my retirement account. Solomon says, listen, those are not bad things, but if that is the source of your hope, if that is the measure of progress and sozo in your life, you will be left empty. And what Jesus is actually offering us is true progress, true sozo. See, these people were healed, and this is an opportunity truly for them and for us to celebrate. But listen, what Jesus is offering us is freedom from slavery. The slavery of our own pride. The slavery of our passion to control our lives. The slavery of career paths. The slavery of the American dream. The gospel frees us from that slavery. And beloved, that is true progress. So our shepherd is unconventional. He uses blood to make clean. He calls us to be slaves of him to experience true freedom. He tells us that our sight that we think we have is actually blindness and only the gospel will open our eyes. That is what the shepherd teaches. 